Dang it. I gotta come up with new material, otherwise Tim Farrow's gonna stop listening. Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by a giant ocean, talking cloud, iPhone batteries, and other technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode 11, recorded on 15 April 2015. How you going, Dan? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself, man? Uh, it's just another day in paradise, I think. Maybe. You're in paradise? Paradise is in Australia? Interesting. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, been trying to spend a little bit more time working outside while the weather's still nice. You, know, uh, you can probably hear the kids in the background. Um, they're on winter break uh, for this, this week, and uh, they were on last week as well. Uh, so I've been running around to, to parks and harbors and things like that and doing the uh, remote thing work. I think it's supposed to be about 84 Fahrenheit today. Uh, hopefully uh, no rain until this afternoon or whatever. And so maybe I can get outside again today and uh, make all you uh, Americans jealous. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally jealous with our <clears throat> highs in the 60s and low 70s this week. And uh lows in the upper 40s with lower 50s so yeah I'm, I'm totally jealous actually i'll keep it this way the rest of the year so like living in san diego year round yeah pretty much so uh a little bit of follow-up from last week um seems like uh that azure resource explorer has been catching some uh, good notoriety. Um, I don't know David Ebo very well, but uh, he put together kind of a walkthrough that you can go check out. Um, he's at David Ebo, E-B-B-O, on the Twitter. Um, he's got, I mean, it, it's pretty nice just the fact that it walks you through, uh, you know, how you can actually use that. And I think, uh, you know, one of the nicer things that we both kind of mentioned last week is if you're trying to find that resource and you're trying to figure out how to get to it from the API, this is your best friend being able to figure out, oh, there's the resource. Now I know how to actually get to it and pull it back and use it uh, in whatever script I need. So um, definitely highly recommend checking out his YouTube video and pressing onward into the world of Azure. Yeah, so uh, David actually is uh, one of the lead devs for Azure App Services, so he's an internal uh, Microsoft. He also uh, helps out with the Project Kudu, which is uh, kind of that uh, whole Git uh, deployment engine that's behind Azure App Services, uh, what was Azure Websites. Um, so being able to do that, those CI pieces and, and look at all that stuff. Um, so his video uh, that was out there, so I believe Scott Hanselman um, also had a link to that. So the, the really cool thing um, that I liked about that was it showed um, not only doing gets, uh, but also doing uh, some more CRUD uh, operations. So let's do some, uh, let's do some puts to create some new resources um, and also some deletes to clean things up. And I think, or uh, at least my impression was that it helped clear up a little bit uh, that this is the Azure Resource Explorer. It's not the Azure Service Management API Explorer. Um, so this all operates against that new side of the world where we've got uh, resource groups and everything kind of lives within these containers. Um, so this is all from the resource manager side of things. So if anybody's ever used the uh, Azure PowerShell commandlets, you actually have to go through and switch modes 
from kind of regular Azure mode over to resource manager mode. Uh, so in, in that process, you're actually kind of flipping back and forth within the same subscription to get access to different commandlets and things like that. So uh, the resource explorer is working on that resource side of things. Uh, so really with the resource management, um, but resource groups and kind of how they help, um, for lack of a better term, uh, how they containerize everything, right? So as we do deployments into resource groups, everything lives within this one holistic container. So if I create a new resource group for um, my application, that means I can wrap its app services, its mobile services, its, uh, its database, its VNets, everything inside the resource group, manage it from one central location. And that's really what all that, that tooling is about. Um, so again, I really like that video because it kind of pointed out uh, those pieces or at least made those things a little bit more clear to me. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me at least, <clears throat> I like it because I can go into it and, you know, sometimes I've got those questions of, well, what's the information that I need to cut and paste into an assignment variable at the top of my script before I run it? And the fact that I can just go through and actually, you know, expand the nodes and see all the different components that are inside my subscription, to me, that's that's pretty powerful because then I'm not curious, you know, did the last command that I passed to the uh, <clears throat> API, did it actually take or did it not take? Um, but also the other kind of neat thing, and I don't know if you've tried this yet, is, uh, and like you just mentioned, the whole, the crud side of it, um, the cute little button that says read or read write. Um, so I don't know, I, I've played with it a little bit, um, mostly in pulling back information just to be able to use inside of uh, scripts, uh, nothing too fancy yet, um, where, you know, trying to do crud op operations through it. Yeah, it's nice that it has that tooling built into it, right? It's meant to be non-destructive from the start, and it really is a premeditated thought on, on our part as people who are utilizing the tooling to go in and hit that button and say, you know, I've played with it enough. I'm ready to do uh, some of these operation, other operations, or I really want to see how they look, right? They, they don't want people just going in and uh, clicking the delete button right from the get-go, so th this prevents some of that. Um you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's it's all about understanding uh, kind of the, the backend platform and uh, what what the fabric's doing, right? Um, so so that that Azure fabric that's driving everything in this resource manager that lives within it, uh, it becomes really helpful, like you said, to understand um, how all these different pieces and parts are tied together, um, how they live hierarchically within the fabric. So as we look at the the different services from uh, something like VMs, which have all these different pieces. They're not just IaaS, they're also web and worker roles. Or when we get into app services and, and uh, like, an, like an Azure app site, and that's driven ultimately by a shared VM in the background and understanding um, some of the different deployment models behind that, right? How we can be on shared resources or uh, dedicated kit, things like that. So it, it lays everything out in a nice tree view for us. And, uh, you know, if you're a visual person, uh, it certainly helps with getting in there and figuring out how that all ties together and bubbles back up to the top and, and ultimately how it looks within, uh, the Azure platform. Yep. And I think, uh, if, you know, if, like I said, and like you just said as well, uh, if you're looking for some tooling that'll help you out um, to better understand and better see the resources you've got, how they're associated, this is uh, this is your new best friend. I'm curious, uh, 
<clears throat> you think they'll ever put something like this inside of uh, Visual Studio, part of the tooling for that? That'll, I mean, <clears throat> to supplement or complement what's already there? So, so I think Visual Studio already has um, some of these bits and pieces in it. And ultimately, uh, you, you're kind of going for a, a different set. So within Visual Studio, uh, we, we have the, uh, the, the server explorer components and the, there, there is an Azure tree in there, right? Where we can go in and uh, look at our storage accounts and do some light VM management and things like that. Um, that's really helpful for um, you know, hooking up to your instances and doing remote debugging. Uh, or if I need to quickly connect to a VM or something like that, um, the the resource explorer and and really what the what the ARM side of things is is starting to do. Uh, it, it's getting more into the if I'm going to package something up and deploy it out. So uh, they might come together at some point, but they really serve different purposes, right? One's about um, quickly managing my resources while I'm developing a project. Um, but ultimately, you're still going to have to have that live in um, something else, right? It's going to live in a PowerShell script or a CLI script or a console application, whatever it may be, um, to go out and execute the, those other actions. So um, I, I don't know how much they'll, they'll converge over time. And, and Visual Studio as it stands is, uh, you know, it kind of lives and breathes and, and, and goes off on its own path. Um, just being that it comes from a different team, so maybe you'll see a plugin or something someday. Yeah, I mean the uh, was it the Azure PowerShell uh, tooling for Visual Studio that was built by someone else and was adopted by Microsoft. I think you uh, you shared that a couple of weeks ago. That's probably the next best thing to uh, be able to expose some of this stuff with syntax highlighting and mm. so on and so forth. But it's not uh, not completely the same thing. So, yeah. Oh, well. Um, so I guess, uh, you had talked a little bit last week about trials with, uh, different cloud providers, anything you wanted to in particular kind of point out. I know for me, I don't regularly do this, but I, I can say that I have created live accounts to spin up, you know, the little Azure services for demonstration purposes and whatnot in a crunch. Um, has that, has that changed at all recently? or is? Yeah, I, I don't think we've actually talked about this uh, on the show, but I, I thought it was worth mentioning because we talk about all of these different platforms and providers and the functionality that's within them. And uh, we have spent some time talking about costing and uh, some different models and things that go on there. So I, I thought it'd be helpful to take a step back and just say, hey, as we're talking about uh, whatever the platform is, whether it's Azure, AWS, uh, you've mentioned uh, Google Compute Engine a couple times, right? Um, all these different platforms have um, their own trials to, to be able to leverage and, and get through, and they all work a little bit differently. So, uh, you know, today anybody can go out to Azure, they can sign up for a free trial. Um, basically, they give you $200 of credit to spend in 30 days, and that's yours to do what you want with it. So, so that's across all Azure services. You want to spin up a standard website. You want to spin up a G series VM for, you know, two minutes and blow through your credit. Uh, you know, you can go ahead and do all those things. Um, AWS um, actually uh, operates with a, a free tier. So you can go in and say, I would like to create a free subscription. Uh, and that 
gives you an opportunity to play around with uh, some of the smaller IaaS instances like the, the micros um, and uh, some of the other services. So you can play around with S3 and, and you've got some limitations around uh, egress and things like that for data or the amount you can store. Um, but that actually lives and breathes for a period of 12 months before it converts over to a paid subscription. So, uh, you know, they, they have a nice chunk of time to, to get in there and play around the platform and figure out what's going on. Um, and then on the Google side, so I, I, I never really looked into Google Compute that much, but you had talked about it a couple of times. So I went out and did some digging on that as well. Um, so Google is a $300 credit that you can use for 60 days. Um, just like Azure, trial is uh, absolutely free. Um, and uh, unless you go ahead and convert over to a paid account, um, th that's it. You've played around with your services and, and you've gone whichever way you need to go. Um, yeah, so again, I just thought it would be helpful to mention that to folks that they can get out there and play with these things themselves. Um, they're, they're not meant to be kind of these walled off fortresses. They're, they're meant to be available for anybody to use. Which, I mean, <clears throat> for someone trying to get their feet wet or hands dirty, um, those free trials come in tremendously helpful. Although when in a pinch, you can always spin up that extra live ID and get an extra Azure services. Um, one thing I don't think also that we've kind of discussed, but uh, if you do go with these three, these free trials of sorts, um, do not expect to be able to apply the credit to like an account that you already have. Um, <laughs> I know that that should be common sense, but common sense is not common. Um, so if you're going, you're spending up an extra Azure services free trial, uh, that $200 is in a separate subscription. Subscription is somewhat the, I don't want to call it the security container, but it's the container around all your resources in Azure. So that kind of, you know, becomes painful. Yes, you can do snap copies from one uh, Azure subscription to another, but there's always just the whole replanning and rehosting that comes into play. So, yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah, it's what it is. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. You get into these weird situations. I, I, I get scared talking to you sometimes about the way, uh, uh, the way you think the world works or expect it to work. Well, uh, you know, the toilet flushes the proper way here. Yeah, well, then that's your fault for living on the wrong side of the world. Uh, okay. So what else we got going on, Scott? Uh, you know, there was a slew of AWS news last week uh, towards, towards the tail end. They've been going through uh, kind of summit season leading up to uh, their reInvent conference. So they've had uh, just all sorts of uh, interesting things coming out. And, and they actually had enough stuff come out uh, that I decided to go ahead and sign up for AWS Summit Sydney uh, next week. So I'm, I'm going to go out and uh, try and learn about some of this new stuff that they have coming down the pipe. So uh, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with any of this or read through any of the documentation, but uh, it seems like they're starting to... Uh, converge a little bit with some of the platform offerings uh, that Azure has. Um, so traditionally in the past, we've kind of had um, AWS as that uh, behemoth in the in the cloud compute space, and uh, Microsoft has been uh, playing catch up to them uh, for traditional IaaS workloads. But Microsoft has always been really good at the kind of platform play. 
and saying, hey, we've got all these other platform pieces. So um, we're so much more than just IaaS or storage or RDS. Look at all these other things we do and how we integrate with developers and give developers nice things. So it looks like AWS is starting to release some services that are um, going to bring them a little bit more in line with that methodology as well. Maybe they saw Microsoft catching up with them uh, in a Gartner Magic Quadrant or something like that, but just a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, one of the first things they had was uh, they announced uh, ML Machine Learning uh, is uh, now out and about. So uh, Azure's had this for a little while, um, but now here we go with uh, AWS coming in and saying, hey, we're going to have our own ML service. Uh, it's going to process data out of uh, some of the other uh, AWS services. So if you're using uh, Kinesis or uh, Redshift or you've just got an RDS MySQL database, something like that, uh, you're going to be able to go ahead and tie that into ML uh, define uh, your own schemas and everything else, and then walk down the path of actually being able to do uh, analysis and, and batch prediction and uh, all the fun things that you would want to do uh, as a developer uh, against uh, those data sets that are coming out. So uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Uh, it's priced pretty well. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, Pricing across, uh, they kind of break it out across data analysis and batch predictions, uh, and then real time predictions, uh, and then you know you've always got how you're you, whatever data you're using, you know you're going to be charged for that off on the side. Yeah, the only the only stuff that I can say that I really noticed, and this is mostly from that uh, that Slack channel that we have, um, <clears throat> that has the integration with the AWS Twitter feed. Um, was more of the stuff around some of the enhancements they were pushing to workspaces. Um, so the virtual desktops in the cloud, uh, I guess the competitor to what you might think of being uh, Azure Remote Access. Um, so it, it looked like they were they were revving up a lot of stuff. And it also seemed like, um, not to discredit machine learning in any way, shape, or form, but it seemed like there were a lot of announcements also just saying, hey, we have all these different Azure or these AWS summits coming up that uh, uh, are going to be going on and definitely to attend them so you can get up to speed on, you know, the machine learning, uh, all the different updates across the uh, workspaces area, as well as some of the enhancements um, around things like the uh, Elastic File System and uh, I guess the other was Container Service. But um, I, the machine learning stuff, Take a step back. It's cool to see them putting that out there as competitor. Um, it's always entertaining to kind of see what uh, what experiments people will put together in their different, you know, their workspaces on those uh, ML platforms. Whether it be predicting, uh, you know, what the weather's going to be tomorrow, what the lucky, um, uh, you know, traffic patterns are going to be. It, it's fascinating to watch folks put their algorithms in tune them and see what pops out the other side. So very cool in that regard. But I think for me, uh, still really the workspace application uh, spaces is what I see at least uh, catching on a little bit more, especially with all the folks that talk about having to have, you know, uh, cloud hosted environments and not wanting to have to deal with having to buy folks, you know, the latest kit for their laptop. They just get a workspace. And as long as they've got a decent network connection, 
they're you know pretty much on their way doing what they need to do. Yeah, so, so Amazon's workspace offering is uh, pretty interesting, uh, and uh, if you've ever had a chance to play around with it, I think it works technically better than Azure Remote App uh, in, in a couple places. So uh, the pricing's kind of in line for the two offerings, um, and and they offer similar functionality. Uh, but when it comes down to the management of it and, and how they're driven, they're a little bit different. So on the Azure side of things, you know, we can deploy um, standard desktop images or we can upload our, our own images. But those tend to be full VHDs and then we need to pick applications out of them. And, and um, you know, basically we're making, hey, this whole VHD is available and then users can use these subsets of applications that are available within them. Uh, so so th that can be a little heavy handed sometimes, right? To say, all right, I need to upload a whole VHD now or I need to snap it across uh, from another storage account or you know whatever I'm gonna do to do that kind of image capture process. Um, so one of the things that Amazon came along and did uh, last week was they came out and said, um, for workspaces, we're going to have this thing called uh, Application Manager. So Workspaces Application Manager, uh, it's got a nice acronym of WAM, uh, and it's really about making uh, delivery of your application to those managed workspaces uh, a lot easier, right? So they've got two offerings around this. So they offer you a basic offering, um, which gives you access to uh, a desktop marketplace where you can push kind of standardized uh, applications out, uh, or you can step up to what they call their standard offering, and that offers uh, far more granularity around how you're going to uh, provision and push those applications to users, uh, including things around like policies to access them, whether you want to have um, SSO or, or things like that turned on. Uh, but one of the really cool things that WAM actually lets you do is it has a uh, basically a, an application capture mechanism that you can deploy out onto some desktop somewhere. So um, let's say I want to add, um, uh, you know, Notepad++ to all my desktops, things like that. Uh, so, so you can go out and you can deploy this application manager. It will package up something like Notepad++. You push it up to your Workspaces account, uh, and then it operates in a manner kind of similar to the, like the Intune company portal or like your company applications. So now there's this standardized application that lives up in workspaces. And then you go through with your policies and you say, okay, who does uh, this particular application apply to? And then when those users log into their workspace, they're basically presented with, here's my list of apps. And it just kind of comes out of that container. So there wasn't this um, process of, of going through and uh, developing a whole new image or anything like that. Uh, so it, it, it's really kind of cool. And one of the other things that they've um, done along with this is now that they've got this kind of basic offering, uh, they've got a marketplace for desktop apps. So they've got a bunch of different categories in there. So they've got accounting and BI and CRM and security and utilities and all these different things. So on top of being able to deliver your own custom applications or maybe you want to bring along your own licensing, something like that, uh, you can also go ahead and uh, deploy up out of this kind of standardized uh, offering. Um, so it, 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 it's really nice to see things like that that make things easier for users and administrators and 
um, everyone else on down the line. So they also brought some some end user things along the way. So they had they had a bunch of other announcements. So um, if you use workspaces, uh, you couldn't use SSO in the past. So uh, if you were tied into one of your AD services or something else, uh, you were kind of left in the cold there. So uh, now you can use uh, SSO. So they've been tying this into some of their other offerings as well, right? So uh, the old Socolo or uh, what they rebranded to Amazon WorkDocs, uh, that allows you to do things like that. So now if you have a AWS directory service, so if you're using one of those uh, AD offerings, you can go ahead and do SSO across uh, WorkDocs and your workspaces, which is really nice. Uh, if you use Macs, they turned on uh, local network uh, printing. So, you know, if you've got a printer hooked up to your Mac, uh, now your workspace is going to see that and push it through. Uh, and one of the other things they did was uh, put a bunch of investments into uh, the connectivity space and basically being able to maintain those connections. So uh, they use uh, a protocol uh, PC OIP, and they've put a bunch of logic behind their client, uh, their workspace's client, for being able to uh, reconnect and uh, resume sessions uh, when they die out. So um, hopefully folks, if they're leveraging that service, they'll see it be uh, a little bit more robust and be able to handle uh, some uh, higher latency situations and things like that uh, quite a bit more gracefully. Um, and some of that will go away as they bring new regions and things like that online. I think they said they're bringing uh, Singapore uh, is going to be getting the, the workspaces offering. So uh, for folks out in APAC, uh, they'll have things that are a little bit closer to them as well. Um, you, you know, you mentioned that it's nice to see some of these things um, come up and, and uh, come in line with some of the Azure offerings. So uh, one thing to keep in mind is, um, as Amazon is releasing services like this, um, it really does give them more of a platform play, right? So uh, Azure has all these services, which are also used by a bunch of uh, internal or uh, some of the, the SaaS offerings from Microsoft, right? So something like ML um, is used quite a bit to drive uh, the Office Graph and, and things like Delve, right? Uh, so now... Amazon has their own service that can start to do these things. Um, and Amazon offers some services that are kind of similar, but not really uh, uh, like document collaboration and things like that. So uh, things like uh, the old Socolo offering or WorkDocs. Now they're going to have ML. Uh, they're going to have um, some of the new uh, file system things that maybe we'll be able to tie into uh, WorkDocs someday to do kind of uh, cross-region replication or something like that. Um, so it, it's always interesting to see the, kind of the, the, the platform grow up uh, and, and what's going to come into there. So I, I'd be pretty happy about the enhancements in workspaces if folks are using that today. Um, hopefully they can get uh, Windows 8 licensing sorted out sometime soon. Uh, they're still on Windows 7 desktops today. Um, but, you know, all these other things do improve uh, the, the service and help us move along and, and grow into it a little bit better. So actually something you just said, and I could have sworn I was reading this last night on the workspaces side that it wasn't actually Windows 7, but it was server 2012 with the, uh, uh, what is that, the desktop experience enabled. 
Uh, for Amazon, uh, yeah. it should be Windows 7. So for hmm. uh, for remote app, or at least it was at, at the last thing I went to. Maybe they maybe they announced something else that I missed that maybe I'll catch up on on Summit next week. Um, re- remote yeah. apps like that because you can't even run uh, the old Server 2008 platform or things like that on, on their stuff. Um, so last time I talked to the folks at AWS, they were kind of waiting for some some licensing things on the Microsoft side. So maybe they got that straightened out as well. Uh, no, I think, okay. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, yep, 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 yep. So basically it was the remote app is not actually when running windows. Uh, it's not the you know desktop app. It's the server version. So anyway, right. Yeah. Yeah. When you do your remote app VHDs, the, those have to be, uh, basically sealed windows images, um, or Windows Server images, right? So uh, it, it's one of those differences, again, between the two of them. If you need to deploy legacy applications or something that runs in like a Windows 7 or a Vista environment and they can't run on a server OS, uh, remote apps really hard to go to because we can't run client OSs in Azure unless we're on an MSDN subscription. That hasn't been brought over to the remote app offering. You'd think Microsoft would be able to sort that out because, hey, they own the licensing, um, but it turns out that uh, you know, lots of folks think of Amazon as like a Linux company or, or something else. I, I believe they are like the largest uh, uh, licensee of Windows technology um, right behind Microsoft, right? So between all the servers and clients and everything else that they're deploying, um, so, so they've got a ton on the licensing side and, and they do SPLA and everything else. Um, but yeah, they do have access to those actual uh, client desktops for, for their remote offering. Yeah, so I think it was that uh, the remote app piece. I just forgot that you do have to have that Windows Server 2012 uh, R2, I think. Yes, um, yeah, it has to be R2. <laughs> um, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's, that's another thing, right? So, so you've, you've got to be latest and greatest cutting edge. Um, and, and ultimately, they're, they're kind of just, they're, they're different at the end of the day, right? One's deploying an actual client OS. The other is deploying uh, Microsoft server OS with desktop experience. And then because you're doing it the Microsoft way for like desktop experience and things like that, you're also limited to RDS licensing and some other things, right? So if you want to deploy your own version of Office or something on a, on a remote, ass, remote app desktop, well, then you've got to make sure you have RDS licensing and, and all the other things that, that come along with that because it's coming out of the server side of things. On the Amazon side, pure client OS, pure client apps uh, can make it a little bit easier to deal with sometimes. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think there was a, a buddy of mine reached out and he said, hey, we really want to deploy this uh, you know, this application, blah, 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 and it has dependencies on Windows 7. I said, well, that's neat. Um, remote app will never be your best friend. Sorry. Um, you're going to have to talk to you know somebody about being able to install it on a server-based OS. And until then, uh, you, you're probably going to have to you know build something else out and uh, do it there. But um, one of the other things that AWS uh, released, at least into preview, and when I say into preview, I mean, hey, at some point they'll actually let people start using it. Um, EFS, uh, so not encrypted file system, but their elastic file system. Um, I don't know if you played with this at all or ta- looked at this at all. Uh, it, it very much reminds me of what uh, Azure has for um, Azure files, where basically you can go create a mount point, 
Now uh, you can go create an NFS share, uh, dump whatever you want in there, and then mount it to multiple machines using good old NetUse. Um, so uh, I found it uh, interesting that AWS was doing something similar. Um, I don't know, you know, when Microsoft's going to catch up on the whole SSD thing, uh, especially since, you know, all of our friendly VMs are still spindle-based, it seems like, uh, whereas on the AWS side, they are by default, or, or they are pushing you to use the SSD-backed ones nowadays instead of spindle-based. Um, hopefully, at some point, Azure will flip the switch and... Uh, very similar to AWS, will not be uh, spindle-based, but who knows. Um, I, I think it's cool that they're putting this out there, and uh, I think uh, on the Azure side for files, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that runs off of spindle. I don't think that's SSD-backed. Um, so a- Azure Files is tied into your storage account, right? So it's it's a matter of having the feature uh, enabled on your storage account. So if you're running a uh, premium storage or, or that, that provision storage in Azure, uh, as long as you have that feature enabled, you're, you're, you're going to have access to it. But you, you do tend to pay... Uh, quite a bit more for for that Azure premium side of things because there's really no um, there, there's no graduation or or step ladder in performance on the Azure side where where you're either at 500 IOPS uh, per disk well you're either at 300 uh, in your basic VMs uh, you're at 500 IOPS uh, in your standard VMs and then you make this jump to uh, premium storage and you jump up to 5,000 IOPS per disk right. So on, on the AWS side, we've, we've got this nice little gradual curve that we can follow and say, okay, I want to do um, maybe something like Glacier Storage, which is like Dirt Slow for archival, or I want to do uh, some kind of uh, EBS, uh, give, me an, give me an old spinny disk, right? Uh, it doesn't need to be fast. Maybe I'm just storing logs or something there, and I'm really not going to go back and read them too often. Uh, and then you make the steps into general purpose SSD, and then same thing, we can step up the ladder to all the way up to provisioned IOPS and, and get us to where we need to be. Um, so the, the nice thing about this EFS service is, uh, again, it's presenting, like, like you said, it's presenting that standard uh, NFS share out. So that's NFS uh, V4. Uh, designed to pretty much work with kind of any workload that you're going to deploy up into AWS. Um, and one of the really cool things about this is uh, we, we, we've talked about uh, IAM quite a bit, um, the identity and access management piece. So all of these uh, file shares are going to be protected by IAM. So you're going to get quite a bit more around uh, kind of the, the security and access side. Uh, than you would in Azure with uh, just a storage account that has, um, you, you know, an, an access key. And, and that's about it to get in and out. So until RBAC comes in fully baked, uh, IAM is going to be really way more powerful than that. So uh, like you said, that's out in preview today. Um, definitely an interesting offering. Um, they've said that uh, they're going to let these things grow up to uh, petabytes per share, so if you have uh, like big data storage needs, then uh, that might be the service for you, right? And you're only going to be charged at uh, their kind of 
standard uh, storage rates as well. So just a little bit on the real-time follow-up for you. Uh, <clears throat> so like you mentioned, uh, depending on where you store your data um, on the Azure side, kind of, you know, defines you're storing it inside your, your Azure storage account. Um, but in addition to that, uh, your different regions have different capabilities, so to speak. So that premium storage stuff, according to the uh, azure.microsoft.com uh, US pricing details storage page, um, has a little caveat on there that it's in preview and only available in uh, West US, East US 2, and West Europe regions. And it's only for page blobs and disks. So uh, I want to say at least initially, you may or may not actually be able to use files with premium storage. At least while it's in preview. So maybe. So it's only available in the regions where you're able to deploy the VMs that are tech and hook up to it too, right? So those big G series yep. VMs, um, you know, they've, they've been a slow rollout and are in preview as well. So all that stuff will eventually come together, um, but it's going to take some time for them to get there. I think the other thing to to remember as well is uh, you said, hey, you know, it'd, it'd be nice if we could ever get to the point where SSD is standardized and we're off spinny disks in Azure and things like that. So uh, hopefully they can get there someday, uh, but the underlying uh, storage mechanism uh, for Azure storage is uh, probably fundamentally different than the way um, AWS is doing it. So uh, AWS has always sold EBS as like just uh, uh, a SAN equivalent block storage, right? And everything that's kind of built on top of that. So I think everybody's always envisioned that as, hey, it's a SAN, let me go out and uh, provision a slice and I'm going to use that for what I need to use it for and then kind of move on. So Azure out of the gate has always been, um, storage is a little bit slower, uh, but for things like uh, blob stores and the, and, and the page stores and everything, as soon as something hits a storage count, it's replicated in triplicate uh, internally within the data center. Um, and some of those things, uh, uh, at least on the AWS side, you know, they haven't come out and said, hey, this is the way architecturally our, our storage mechanism works. Um, so they've sold it, like I said, as, as traditional SAN storage. So you, you can think of that going onto a SAN and then maybe snapping someplace else. Uh, but the underlying storage mechanism for Azure is, is, is a bit different. So I, I would be willing to bet it's taking them a bit longer to figure out how to how do we meld our storage methodology and our overarching architectural layer for storage on top of the actual storage mechanisms that sit underneath, whether that's SSDs or spinny things or anything else. Yep, and someday we will solve the problem of the speed of light. Uh, AWS is trying to make that a little bit easier for you. Uh, so, so I don't know, did you have a chance to uh, read up on the cross-region replication stuff? So this, uh, I did not, no. Yeah, so, so this is something Azure's had for um, pretty much since day one. They've always had geo-replication, right? So if I provision in East US, uh, I can go ahead and have a geo-replicated storage account uh, that sits in West US. Or if I'm in North US, I can go to South US uh, or down to Brazil, you know, the, the, those kind of things. Uh, so AWS has come out and uh, for S3 storage, uh, they're going to start offering uh, cross-region replication there as well. 
So uh, basically, as long as you've enabled versioning within your S3 storage account, uh, you're going to be able to go ahead and um, make a physical copy of that uh, in some other region. Because I, you know, one of the things I think people forget when they, um, you know, first start playing with AWS is we've got that concept of regions and availability zones, and everybody thinks says, um, you know, AZs is kind of the the end all be all. Uh, but definitely, if you're looking for um, having the, the the warm fuzzies around, maybe I want my data to live in both places, and I want a discrete backup of it someplace that lives, you know, on the on the other side of the world or anything like that. Um, let me go ahead and uh, push that data over uh, with this new service. So uh, one of the nice things about cross-region replication on S3 is you're not tied into a particular region. So if you're deployed in um, Oregon today and you want to push that data out to APAC or uh, EMEA or someplace else, it's really just a matter of having uh, another bucket to snap those things over to and, and uh, push them across. Uh, definitely a, a really nice, really cool kind of thing, uh, at least from a kind of backup and, hey, where does my data live uh, uh, perspective. It, it'll be nice to see what else they can put on top of this, right? So at, over time, maybe I can, you know, if they can come out with an offering where I can have a single endpoint for my S3 bucket and direct things around based on um, regions and things like that, that, that might be kind of cool too. Uh, but as it stands today, if you turn this on, you can have a primary data set that lives in your primary region. Go ahead and enable cross-region replication, replicate everything over to your secondary region, and now you automatically have a uh, secondary readable copy uh, that you can go ahead and do whatever you want with. Which comes in fairly handy. Yeah, it can be nice sometimes, right? Especially for those uh, good old DR stories where folks just... Want to make certain that all their data is still available to them at all times. <laughs> uh, do people think about that? Um, I would like to think some of them think about that, but I tend to find that most uh, kind of have that, have that as an afterthought um, when they're going in and they're telling their boss, "Oh yeah, we can get this back to you in you know two hours," and you just start laughing maniacally. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know it is what it is. Um, so w one last thing on the AWS side. Um, they actually, they, they have one more new service uh, that came out and available. And so that's their uh, uh, container service. So this yeah. is their um, Docker containers, right? So so managing those clusters and, and what comes in there. So they, they, they've had uh, the ECS, the uh, container service in preview for a little while. Uh, it is now generally available. Uh, so it's out in... Uh, APAC in addition to the other regions where it was while it was in preview. Uh, and th they've brought some new functionality to it as part of that because, uh, I, I don't know, maybe having it come out of preview and going GA uh, wasn't enough for them. Um, so they've added this ability to have uh, long-running applications. So basically, if you have these uh, batches that are running with uh, kind of these Docker containers and compute doing things behind them, uh, now you can go ahead and uh, schedule these out, have things uh, run in a cluster. Um, they support full health management. Uh, so if you've uh, got anything that uh, you need to watch it and based on the performance of the Docker cluster, 
uh, you need to scale up or scale down. That's all supported as part of the platform now. Uh, and you can also go ahead and do uh, load balancing. So if you've got something that is uh, going to be pushing data in and out of those containers, uh, they allow you to uh, distribute traffic across that entire cluster, however you spin it up, uh, with an elastic load balancer. So uh, that's actually uh, really nice to see that come in and, and just be tied into now, right? So if I want to spin up a Docker cluster, awesome, go ahead, spin it up, let it does what it needs to do go ahead and watch it, monitor it. I can scale up, scale down within it. Um, and then I can also be confident that everything's going to be uh, load balanced across it. So hugely, hugely kind of powerful stuff in there. Um, they also said that um, uh, they're going to tie those APIs into CloudTrail. So if you're doing any kind of auditing of API calls or things like that, um, it's, it's all there and just ready to go. Cool. Um, I know that CloudTrail piece is still uh, one of the things that is pseudo missing from Azure, although operational insights are little by little catching up. So, Yeah, uh, hopefully someday we'll see operational insights start to offer uh, a little bit more of the platform side of things, right? So Op Insights is really good at monitoring uh, your traditional logging mechanisms. So if you have like Windows event logs, things like that. Uh, but it would be nice to see a lot of these things uh, surfaced in a more holistic manner across the platform, right? So we talk about like something like having the ability to access Azure Resource Manager. Uh, so great. So now my developers can go hit a subscription in a website. It might be nice to monitor what they actually did while they were in there. And we're missing kind of that holistic view today on the Azure side. Uh, I'm not quite certain we are. Uh, I know... A week or so ago, I was poking around in there and noticed that uh, inside Operational Insights, it was surfacing things like uh, resource groups being set up and torn down. So you might want to go back and check. I think they are expanding uh, exactly what it does. Yeah. So, so the, the, they are adding to the logging stuff, right? We, we talked about this in the past and kind of some of that stuff coming into the preview portal and some more of the telemetry being surfaced up. But part of the problem is um, Azure, that that the overlying fabric isn't all tied together, right? So I can see things from resource groups, um, but what happens if I'm deploying a service uh, outside of a resource group or uh, if I put that into some other container or it's within one of these new services that isn't even monitored at all? So CloudTrail is nice because it gives us, hey, here's the entire platform for AWS and all the services that, that it encapsulates. And then on the Azure side, you know, to a certain degree, we're still stuck with going to individual places. So, all right, I, I can see what happened uh, within a, a resource group and maybe somebody tore down a, a website or something like that. Um, but let me go see all the API calls against an Azure SQL DB. And you can't do that today without going over to Azure SQL and then um, looking into kind of the SQL monitoring and things like that. So uh, when I talk about holistic monitoring, right, it, I, I, I'd like to see them get to the point where it's a single pane of glass for, for the entire service. And then let me drill down into subservices from there. Yep. And you're right. Uh, from that perspective, we don't quite have that single pane of glass yet. Uh, but maybe with Xbox Glass tied into Operational Insights, um, we'll be able to get that level of detail. And I'm just kind of being snarky about that. But I think, uh, you know, Microsoft does see some of the value in putting those uh, things available to us on mobile devices 
such as that Office 365 app that they recently put out there um, for quote-unquote remote admin of sorts. But um, something else that uh, you know kind of popped up on the radar in the world of Azure um, was this article that popped up last week about Nano Server and. Uh, to me, I had, I had never heard about this, um, which, you know, I don't know. It's, I guess it's not surprising, but um, Nano Server basically is uh, Windows Server, but parred down significantly, um, hence why it is called Nano. Uh, it is not meant to be anything that is uh, has a GUI to it. It's not really meant to be something that you log into or you do remote uh, or you do execution of PowerShell or anything like that on it. Um, it really, I mean, its use cases are pretty much run a Hyper-V or Hyper-V cluster or uh, a scaled out file server, or I guess the other thing they're kind of putting it out there for is to be able to run quote unquote born in the cloud apps. So the whole modern app uh, skew side of things, but uh, definitely interesting technology. I'm curious when they're going to start releasing it. Um, I guess on the couple blog articles that are out there on the Microsoft side that talk about it, uh, it's mostly going to be discussed or uh, brought to light uh, at Build and at uh, Ignite in a couple weeks. So I'm I'm excited to see what they're going to you know actually uh, discuss there. The one video they've got out there on Channel Nine about uh, Nano Server, it's pretty wild. Uh, he sets up a Nano Server ready to go in about three minutes. And it uh, it's a it's a weird interface. Um, I don't know if you'd watch that, but it was kind of one of those things where it's like, what what is that interface he's actually using? Because it's not PowerShell, that's not SSH. What is that? But uh, I guess we shall we shall see. Very cool technology. Um, I think I saw one uh, one little thing on there that was something to the effect of, you know, if you've got a terabyte of RAM, you can run a thousand of these things kind of in the, in the background uh, for different infrastructure services to operate. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely exciting and it's going to be neat, right? They've had a bunch of announcements around um, uh, containerization, right? So, so this probably plays into that or hopefully this plays into that a little bit having access to kind of these, these lightweight servers. Um, so, so like you said, they, they, they don't run a GUI. Um, they actually don't run 32 bit apps at all. So they've cut down the surface area, uh, quite a bit more on that. Um, uh, not just from kind of what we can install, but that, that also cuts down on the, the size of the OS and, uh, makes it easier to deploy these things quickly. So, so their disc footprint is, uh, exponentially smaller, right? Um, they've also talked about, uh, how it's not going to have, uh, any support for like local logins or, uh, remote desktop support, things like that. So, um, fully PowerShell management, uh, fully managed via PowerShell, uh, and, uh, Windows server remote management. That's going to be the name of the game. Um, like you said today, they're going to focus on Hyper-V and cloud apps, um, and it sounds a little bit like this is going to tie into some of like the new stuff in .NET v5, uh, where we've got like the lighter weight cloud runtime and things like that. Um, so, you know, you're not going to be running SharePoint or Exchange on top of this, uh, but you will get some, probably some really cool um, kind of batch based uh, workloads. 
So where we were talking about something like the ECS container service, being able to spin up, spin down, health management, and, and uh, scale things appropriately, uh, that's where this is going to come into play. Uh, and it, it's, it's going to be really cool to uh, see it come out, not just on-premises, but hopefully we get access to these things uh, up in the Microsoft Cloud platform as well. So, uh, you know, we should see this in like on-premises CPS, uh, and then hopefully within something like Azure um, at, at the same time. So like like you said, more details uh, will be coming out at Ignite. I think um, uh, Jeffrey Snover has like five or six sessions. Uh, one or two of them are focused just on, on nano server and kind of where this technology is going and, and where they see it fitting uh, over time. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing just to you know, be mindful of is this fits into that whole, like you mentioned, uh, the whole... Uh, way that Microsoft is kind of now looking at uh, Docker contained infrastructure where they've got regular Docker, which they said would be coming, I think in uh, what Windows Server V next um, was kind of the rumor mill of when that would be coming. Well, you, you have Docker management today, right? So, so Microsoft yeah. has released that tooling already. So you can manage uh, Docker instances uh, from Windows today. That, that was all uh, part of Azure and everything else. Uh, what they did say was uh, not outside of Docker containers, they're, they're going to have window containerization as well. Uh, but that's coming, yeah, like you said, uh, probably after vNext because they, they just announced it a couple months ago. Yeah, but I think, you know, on top of that, their announcement of uh, Hyper-V containers as well as uh, the... Uh, what was it, uh, the Windows Server container, and then just containers. And I was like, oh, huh, okay. Um, so as an IT pro, if you're not up to uh, snuff on containers, it may be time to uh, start learning about those. And there's actually, uh, it's not Scott Hanselman, um, there's a, uh, a podcast out there called Arrested DevOps, and they had a session completely on uh, Docker and kind of how it works and what it means, so. Something to check out if, uh, if you got a couple spare cycles as well. Yeah, they actually uh, they, they had an episode a couple of weeks ago uh, with Jeffrey Snover uh, talking about kind of DevOps within uh, Microsoft and the server team and, and um, specifically with PowerShell and, and uh, where that model is kind of going. Uh, so there's some uh, nice episodes to check out on that side. A um, couple other things. Uh, I know we already talked a lot about Azure. We've talked a lot about AWS. Uh, back to, you know, our bread and butter office. Um, I don't know if you've tried playing with it yet. Uh, last week, SharePoint Fest, I needed to check out one of my, uh, slide decks real quick and I didn't feel like actually pulling the slide deck down. So I actually just went to office.com, logged in with my creds and, uh, opened up my document straight there through Dropbox, uh, in the app and it worked really really nicely so this is something they added uh shoot maybe back in january maybe uh to the office apps on ios and android uh, to be able to go out and navigate to your favorite cloud csp cloud storage provider um <coughs> otherwise known as dropbox um to be able to open up documents and so they added this they said hey we're gonna add this at some point down the road to the office apps um, this is now live and well as of last week, and I gotta say it's it's charming. I really do like it. Um, I I guess I'm curious when they're going to make that available to us inside of just the office uh, desktop applications. But 
part of me says they probably never will. Um, so we'll see. Um, the other little thing, uh, kind of on the office side, and I know this popped up for me. It's, uh, apparently as of yesterday, Microsoft has a security update out there for Outlook for Mac for Office 365. If that's not a mouthful, I'm not certain what is. Um, but that uh, apparently is a critical uh, remote execution uh, security <coughs> bulletin that was put out there. So if you are using Mac and you're using the Office 2016 for Mac preview, um, go pull down that security update. It will get you up to version 15.9. Ooh, new version. I know. Everybody likes those. You know it. So did you see uh, the Delve announcement they had yesterday? So they, they talked about uh, the new people experience in Office 365 and kind of how Delve is going to be uh, supplanting the About Me page from your my site. Uh, I saw they had something up on the blogs.office.com about that, but I uh, unfortunately was not able to attend that uh, Ask Me Anything Yam Jam they had. I think today um, or yesterday for you, but no, I, I did not get a chance to check that out too much yet. How about yourself? Uh, so uh, I, I don't have it in my tenant yet. So it's, it's going out to first release and then coming through um, digging through the blog posts that they had. This is one of those interesting things where um, as they develop these new experiences in office 365, they start to kind of supplant uh, existing uh, functionality that was out there. So if uh, if you had a chance to read the blog post, there was a FAQ or like Q&A session section down at the bottom um, where uh, Mark Cashman was attempting to answer some of the most common questions. Uh, so, so your About Me page uh, today comes out of uh, uh, SharePoint Online. It comes out of your My Site, right? And SPO. And, you know, they just had some enhancements there to make that a little bit more responsive and, uh, you know, make it a little easier to do updates from mobile devices and things like that. Um, so, you know, this new Delve thing comes out and they say, okay, here it is. Uh, but, you know, I wonder what does this do to things like functionality within um, SPO? So uh, this is actually, it sounds like it's going to replace that piece. So the entire about me thing in SharePoint goes away and now it's driven out of ML and Delve. So uh, they did mention that Delve doesn't have any of the customization built into it today. So uh, kind of what you see is what you get, right? Uh, but the my site experience and uh, that ability to customize that about me page, um, that's only going to be around for about another six months. And then, uh, so what they said is they'll keep the custom MySite experience uh, accessible for users for another six months. Um, and then they want to uh, release some new capabilities um, to help you extend this other new experience. Uh, so, so that could be a little bit painful if folks have put some uh, investments into uh, extending uh, some of that MySite stuff again. Yeah, so I, I could have sworn... Um... Uh, so if you go out onto our SB Delta um, tenant, uh, the Delve experience is there. But if you click on uh, About Me, it still takes you to the old uh, personal immersive ASPX page. Um, I could have sworn, though, I saw something else recently that said that they were updating kind of just the, uh, 
that about me page with more information that would pull from uh, Azure Active Directory, and I can't remember. Maybe maybe this was it. Maybe this is what I read two days ago, um, and just got it confused. But yeah, I saw you know saw that blog article. And I said, oh neat, they're they're adding some more pieces to Delve. Um, cute. I, I didn't. I guess I didn't put two and two together. They're taking this and dropping it in. So first release is turned on, um, and it's it's out there. It's an interesting experience. Um, I'm really curious how they're going to bake this in or make this available, accessible, something to SharePoint on-prem. Wait for Ignite, right? Nobody's kind of seen anything from vNext, but uh, this ties in a lot of those pieces a, a, a lot harder into the platform, right? So I, I, I would imagine you're going to see uh, more of a split between this functionality or you, you're going to need some pretty heavy connectors coming back to your on-premises systems uh, to allow things like Azure ML inside to you know give it access to your system so it can build some of the graphs and, and things like that that it needs to position and put together. Yeah, now that now that I think about it, I know what it was that uh, kind of popped up. But uh, a friend um, was toying around with customizing uh, their immer- person immersive ASPX through uh, JavaScript injection, trying to get more data to actually flow into it. So um, maybe, yeah. Well, it's bad when your uh, your email starts to blur your mind. Um, Cool stuff, though. I'm, I'm excited to see uh, you know, how this shakes out, especially for uh, that activity feed. I know that's been one thing that a lot of folks have kind of complained about. Uh, you know, with especially once you you enable Yammer on like an Office 365 tenant, you sort of lose that activity feed, that news feed that uh, we had in SharePoint 2013. So this, you know, at least from activity perspective, uh, that'll come in very handy to be able to go back and kind of track your steps of what uh, what you've touched recently. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's nice to see him build these things out. Um, I, it, it's, it's exciting. I, I always get concerned uh, about the things that they shut off along the way and they kind of leave to partners to communicate to folks, right? So, uh, you know, the, the product teams tend to think that, hey, everybody reads the office blogs, but not a lot of people are going to catch that uh, you know, this, uh, the, the, my site experience is going to be changing in the next six months. And it's not clear. Is that six months from today? Is that six months from when this rolls out to the last tenant? You, you know, what does that look like? Um, they also had some, uh, other functionality within there around, uh, microblogging. And, uh, you know, if anybody has been using a blog within SharePoint, um, or a, more specifically a blog within their, my site, cause everybody, you know, an Office 365 automatically had that link. Um, yep. You know, they, they said, okay, we're going to bring your previous posts over to this new experience. <clears throat> uh, but once this goes ahead and ships, um, that's it. You're, you're, you're going to be over in this new authoring canvas and every, everything else. So, uh, you know, it's, it's another one of those pieces of functionality that if folks are using, it gets eaten up. You know, it's kind of like, uh, remember when they turned tags and notes off in Office 365 with like no notice and they said, all right, we, we, we turned it off today. By the way, uh, there's no way to migrate your data. You can pull it down, but it's useless. Have fun. Um, you know, some of this stuff seems uh, a, a little bit heavy handed in that, that same regard. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because I've been uh, tinkering with the SharePoint Online MySite blog a little bit and trying to encourage others to use it um, within, you know, any uh, any platform they're in just from that knowledge sharing perspective. So, ah, man, that stinks that they're going to just gut that and replace it. Although it does say that your previous blog posts will transfer over. So hopefully that'll work seamlessly, knock on wood. Yep. Migrations always go easy. Oh, yeah, totes. Um, something else that uh, actually somebody asked in a session that I was doing last week at SharePoint Fest um, was about Office Delve and the inability to actually get to anything that was uh, Delve-related when you're on your mobile. Um, so it is neat that they're bringing that to the mobile as well, apparently. Uh, yeah, so, so that application released uh, for iOS and Android yesterday. Uh, yep. Yesterday, yeah. Um, so, so they've got a, a Delve application. So I, I went out to the App Store and installed that. Um, and I was digging through, you know, Microsoft uh, published applications. I had actually missed that they had uh, released an application for Office 365 video as well. Uh, so I went out and grabbed that one. Haven't had a chance to play with it. I'm still waiting for the Delve one to load up. It lets me log into my tenant and then it just sits there with their cute little Delve loading animation. Maybe I'll try another tenant or something and see if that fares any better. Gotcha. Um, so you'd mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the office world um, and realizing that everything we've got in the office world uh, still, well, not unfortunately, uh, tags back to Azure just because, hey, that's our hosting platform. That's where we get identity. That's where authentication takes place. Um, it was kind of neat. Uh, Kirk Evans our, our friend down in Texas, who is an Atlanta Braves fan, uh, which could be the best team in baseball, um, he uh, he put out a blog article last week, or actually, geez, two days ago, um, about uh, using Azure Active Directory as an application, <laughs> application proxy for SharePoint 2013 on-prem. And it was definitely a nice uh, article to write, but it, you know, it walked you through the whole nine yards of how to get there. Uh, but the thing that cracked me up is he tweeted it out and a couple folks went out and read it and they were like, man, this is a lot of information. This is kind of long, so on and so forth. Uh, in fact, uh, Tom Rezing, you know, wrote back and said, man, this is, uh, this is good, but it hurts my head. Um, and Kirk replied back that, you know, if you started off with grab the spin, register it with Azure AD, and then it's ridiculously easy, uh, that probably wouldn't have gone so well. He had to quote unquote pay the SharePoint tax. So I thought that was a uh, kind of funny that he was you know, actually saying, no, this is pretty darn simple to set up these Azure AD application proxies. Uh, if you already have the connectivity in place in terms of like a site to site VPN uh, or express route, then really it's, you know, as easy as dirt, just registering it and uh, making it available to your users. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't. Have you had a chance to play with uh, the AD app proxies at all? I have not. Well, okay, I've played with them loosely. So I've gone through and set up a couple things um, where it's Azure Active Directory application proxy pointing it at say IaaS workload, so it's nothing uh, back on prem. But I have been able to go through and uh, make that work for a very very simple application. Uh, nothing too fancy. So it was cool to see that he had gone through kind of the entire steps of uh, setting up for SharePoint. You know, he laid it out really nice. It, it is uh, 
pretty much dirt simple, right? It's it's one of those next, 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 next kind of things. Uh, one of the things I really liked about uh, his blog post is uh, he laid it out with uh, the constrained delegation, right? So that's something that's, that's near and dear to your heart. Um, and it also kind of surfaces a, a little bit more around the way that that offering works. So I think it gets lost a little bit because it's tied into the Azure AD premium SKU. So you, you've got to go out and do that extra spend or do an Azure AD premium trial to get access to it. Um, I, I know when I talk to folks, sometimes they get, uh, it, it's a little confusing because um, it's called Azure uh, AD application proxy. And as soon as you hear proxy and tying back to on-premises services, uh, a lot of people think they need uh, WAP, like like the uh, application proxy built into ADFS, or they need something else sitting up in, in line because how is this thing going to talk back to my on-premises system? Uh, It's really the Azure AD service bus relay uh, proxy. Uh, So it it uses the same service bus bits uh, that have been used by service bus to talk back to uh, on-premises data systems and and things like that. So, uh, you know, it it was nice to see it all laid out and it exposed all that. And here you go. Uh, You've got a connector. Here's where the connector lives. Here's how you actually configure uh, integrated Windows authentication. Uh, that's a big piece that's uh, missed by folks sometimes. Um, and and like you said, he, he just laid it out nice and easy. There was nothing hard about what was in there. Um, it, it really, the only reason his blog post was so long was because he had all the screenshots in it. You know, if you laid that out in discrete steps, it's like five or six discrete things, right? Um, you know, you can do how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in 50 steps, which is which is what Kirk tends to do. Um, and if you distill it down, it's, it's really how to make a peanut butter and jelly in, you know, five or six steps, um, at at a higher level. Uh, yeah, I I think fortunately he did make it, uh, dirt simple and lay it all out for those folks that were like, Hey, where's the magic wand and all this. So I'm glad that he, he put it the way he did, but it is just dirt simple. Um, and I like, like you said, he put out the constrained delegation piece, which just is special spot in my heart near near and dear to you you know it um so any other uh any other cool stuff that you saw this past week in terms of uh things popping up in the world of uh, sharepoint or office 365 so uh one thing that popped up uh, a couple days ago um that i thought was really interesting was uh there was a uh i believe he's a pfe yeah, he's a Microsoft guy. Uh, yep. Samuel Betts. Uh, he had a blog post about uh, hosting your SharePoint content databases inside of SQL Azure. Um, so not inside an IaaS instance, but actually inside of the uh, the RDS offering, right? Uh, or the the kind of um, PaaS offering. So. Uh, you know, he, he laid out how to go through and, um, you know, set up your database and, you know, here's how you get your usernames and passwords and here's how you put those into SharePoint. So we've been able to do this for, um, for a long time now, pretty much, um, since SQL Azure came out. Um, but uh, you and I have talked about this, uh, a little bit in the past with, with some of our, our cloud presentations and things like that, how, 
Um, the RDS stuff in Azure and AWS, it doesn't allow us to set some properties on the uh, SQL instance level that Microsoft really likes to have, or that SharePoint really likes to have, like um, uh, max degree of parallelism, right? Max stop, we can't set that to uh, the value that SharePoint, um, uh, SharePoint expects. Um, and there were also some performance considerations and things like that um, going out and, and doing this. So uh, I, I was a little uh, weird to, to see this come out because sometimes when you see things come out on, on the uh, MSDM blogs, they, they kind of get read as um, uh, now this is a supported configuration or something like that. And I, I, I don't know, have you heard anything? Like, is this going to be supported at some point in the future or tied into an existing CU? Because we still can't do max stop. We've always had kind of the property on our content databases that says whether the database lives in SQL Azure, yes or no. Uh, so there's that is SQL Azure in the object model. Um, but I've always been hesitant to deploy things over there because of the max stop thing, because of um, kind of the sizing and speed considerations, uh, some, of, some of the taking control of some of the backups and other things. And then also we're going into mixing that that Windows world and um, just straight SQL auth to get over there. So I don't I know if you had had a chance to read that one or had any thoughts on it. Yeah, so I read it and I cringed and I was half tempted to write the guy and tell him, why did you put this out there? Like, why are you encouraging people to consider this? Uh, one of the things that we have to remember is that latency piece um, for SQL Server. I, I want to say that, uh, you know, to actually have a decent user experience uh, you need to keep that uh, latency less than 10 milliseconds. So uh, it's, it's less than one millisecond. Is it less than one? Ah, you're right. It is less than one. I'm thinking uh, some of the things around, uh, I think, database mirroring. You have a little bit more, uh, you know, room in there. But you're right. No, anything less than a millisecond. And uh, you're going to start seeing latency just build up. And the user experience is going to pretty much be horrible. So, uh Unless you happen to be deploying to, uh, you know, use, uh, is premium storage even available on SQL? I guess maybe it is. Uh, they, they have a couple of different offerings on the SQL side. They don't quite go up to premium storage, but they do have some, um, some faster dedicated instances and things like that. But it's still, um, you know, they just had the new V12 engine come out, uh, which brings it a little bit closer to compatibility with on-premises SQL server. But it's still not on-premises SQL Server. So I'd, I'd still be really, uh, really, really, really hesitant to recommend anybody do this. Yeah, so I mean, you pretty much you don't have throughput, so to speak. I mean, you can go to a service tier of premium and you'll get a uh, performance level of so many, quote-unquote, uh, what is it, database um, DTUs, um, which is basically just saying... Yeah, so if the norm of processor utilization is 50%, uh, you'll get a little more of those cycles than, say, your next-door neighbor that has five DTUs. So it's just, it's one of those things where you're on shared equipment, your you know, the latency could kill you. Now, if you've got high-speed gateway uh, set up and your site-to-site VPN is connected and you're right there uh, next to a data center maybe, maybe you could do it. Um, but I, again, I think, you know, you start looking at the documentation, unless you have 
uh, ridiculously low latency, you cannot do a stretched farm in a supported way. Um, the other thing to kind of consider is you mentioned the, uh, you know, the maximum degree of parallelism setting the MDOP. Um, I don't, I don't see them changing that anytime soon because that's an entire instance of SQL that you've got to change that for. That's not just, you know, the one database. Uh, and since, you know, <clears throat> the way that you can do SQL permissioning, uh, you can have multiple people running out of a single instance and they just don't know it because they don't see the other databases because, because they don't have ownership of those databases or even read to those databases. So that master database sits in the background that holds some of those configuration settings. Uh, you're probably still not going to get access to that. Um, the other thing to consider in all this, yay, Windows authentication is not there. So uh, you're stuck with SQL authentication. So what does that mean? Well, it means you have yet another username and password that you have to go and update on a regular basis on your SQL instance that happens to live up in SQL Azure. Um, and OPS, if you're hosting your SQL instance um, and you suddenly have an IP address change on your uh, where you're hosting SharePoint, um, all of a sudden you've got to go back into SQL administration and add that additional IP address from a firewall setting so that your SharePoint environment can get to SQL. Uh, so there are a lot of things just around it that uh, it gives me a little bit of heartburn. Um, now, if, if you're looking at it and you're telling yourself, well, I'm running uh, my SharePoint instance in Azure on infrastructure as a service, maybe this works. Maybe you can drop this out there for your configure or for your content databases. Um, I think you're still going to be limited to keeping your configuration databases and your service application databases local to that SQL instance that you potentially be running out of Azure. But anything beyond that, uh, I, I just cannot recommend it. That's just me. Yeah, no, it's it's a, a, a tough, weird place to be, right? <laughs> Again, it's just one of those things that, you know, I think, you know, these guys write these things and uh, the, the the websites don't have the standard disclaimer that says, hey, this isn't actually a, a supported thing to do. So then you have customers that go out and read about it and they say, all right, let's go ahead and try this because, oh, wouldn't this be cool? Uh, no, it's, 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 it's a really bad idea to walk down this path and, and do these things. So it, it's nice from like a POC kind of thing. Um, you know, I've always just wanted to, uh, include it in like, uh, some of our like Azure presentation build scripts and things like that. Hey, here's another way that, um, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we could do this someday? Uh, but I've always been hesitant to do it because it's just not necessarily the right way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, you know, it's funny to read through the, the, the comments on that article. I hadn't noticed them, uh, the actual comments themselves, but somebody does point out, uh, the bit about supported land latency uh, greater than one millisecond um, and not having that. Uh, and it was kind of funny because the, the author writes back and says, that's a slightly strange limitation. We'd only enforce that if performance problems were being seen and pretty much everything else had been disc discounted. So that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, just a bad mindset to have. Mm. Yeah, it is what it is. True. Um, something else, uh, I'm more and more starting to warm up to that Surface 3 as like a business user uh, device, uh, the size of it. Uh, somebody was actually carrying around their old, uh, not old, but their Surface 2, so the RT device that uh, we all came to love. And yeah, it was Joel, that, wasn't it? 
Yep, yep, it was droll. Um, anyway, the uh, the device, you know, it's Surface 2. Um, the, the form factor, not too bad. But I think, you know, if you look at it, the form factor for the Surface 3 is almost the same. It's just kind of been re-engineered to have the Surface Pro 3 look um, and have that Atom processor inside. And I think for a lot of, uh, you know, business execs, that could actually work pretty well. Uh, I'm not quite certain how they'll display or project uh, to like a audience, but I figure, uh, you know, if the Surface had its own special micro HDMI, maybe, I don't know, uh, some sort of crazy little connector, uh, I'm certain that uh, they could probably find something that works just well, uh, just as well for that Surface 3. So I haven't uh, checked the IO for it yet, but um, from everything that I have read, uh, whether it be ours, whether it be any of the other uh, kind of blog articles out there, read, write, and whatnot, uh, they all seem to give it pretty positive reviews of trying to be a tablet uh, or trying to be a laptop computer, um, but that it really is uh, kind of that uh, that that more well-defined, well-engineered uh, tablet that just happens to run Windows 8. Yeah, I mean, Windows on a tablet, uh, like I've said, not the thing for me. Uh, one of the things that kind of um, always always bites me when I go to look at things like that is I, I say, "Ooh, Surface 3, uh, 500 bucks. That, that that's a great price, uh, but that's just the Surface 3. It doesn't include the keyboard, which you really kind of need. You might want a pen or something else like that. So you know, you've automatically got to walk down the path of adding what is it like 120, 130 dollars for the keyboard, um, and now all of a sudden you're spending like 700, 800 bucks on the device. And uh, now you can start to look at other things. You can look at some of the uh, other ultra books that are out there, whether they're some of the Lenovo stuff or um, Asus or Samsung and anything like that um, to get out of an atom processor and probably get into like an i5 or something like that. And uh, probably a little bit nicer screen. You know, some of them have really high density displays and, uh, some other things. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a, uh, a tough pill to swallow sometimes when it comes to, uh, that device. Well, the other, you know, from a compatibility perspective, don't forget, you can still use your surface pro three, uh, <clears throat> cool little, um, uh, touch keyboard attached to it. So I thought that was, uh, also kind of funny that you can, uh, apparently attach that to your device. But the screens um, are different sizes, right? So like the actual yep. physical form factor. So if I attach a Surface Pro 3 keyboard to a Surface 3, then all of a sudden I've got this keyboard that's actually bigger than the device when I close it because those keyboards are meant to be kind of covers too as well. Well, yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. If anything, it looks like, uh, you know, when we were little kids trying to dress up in our parents' clothes, so, um, no, I think, uh, it, it's an interesting story to me because, you know, for those of us that already have like a Surface 3 Pro dock, um, and keyboard and all that jazz, uh, great. Now we get to go buy a Surface 3 dock and Surface 3 touch keyboard. So, um, I don't know, little nuances. I, I think, you know, from a, uh, competing with the iPad though, that it does have a good shot of, uh, taking back a little bit of the market share in that in that realm, especially if, uh, if we're going to start seeing universal apps, uh, start to become more prevalent. And if we start seeing, uh, you know, a little bit of a better experience on tablets and I know 
the uh, the tablet experience is not the greatest that we have uh, we have been through, but I think that also might just be the Dell Venue Pro uh, that has been kind of our bane of experience. No, I'm pretty much sure it's the Microsoft tablet experience. You know, you, even with uh, you, you know when I see people using the Surface Pros at conferences and things like that, if they're doing typing or anything like that, they've got it down, set up like a laptop, and they're typing away on the keyboard. Uh, or they're, you know, taking notes in OneNote and drawing with a pen and things like that. You really don't see people running around without the keyboard and using the uh, the, the on-screen kind of tablet mechanisms and things that are built into it. So um, ultimately, you know, there are different use cases. Uh, so different strokes for different folks. You got it. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we're running up on a lot of time. Uh, so... <clears throat> For those of you that are not yet 40 years old, um, guess what? Uh, Office or Windows, geez, man, Microsoft is now older than you. So Microsoft celebrated 40 years this past uh, past week. Um, I think it was the second or third of April is when they actually started. So uh, kind of neat. Um, if you get a chance, uh, Bill Gates has an article out there that uh, was basically an all-employee email that somehow leaked. Um, they just kind of talked about, you know, his uh, how he was proud of the company, how he sees the company changing over time, where he sees the company going. Uh, neat little note, just to, you know, get all uh, reminiscent, teary-eyed. Uh, fun to be nostalgic. Isn't it? So, Dan, where can people find us on the internet? You know, people can find us on the internet if they go over to www.brewery.fm. Uh, they can find show notes over at brewery.fm by just simply going and scrolling down to the episode of their choice. Or if they're familiar with patterns and practices, they can find the appropriate episode corresponding by just going to pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery and then the number of the episode. So, for instance, if this is episode 11, it would be pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery 011. Um, so we do have things indexed with uh, three digits. So if we ever get up to a uh, thousand episodes, we will have to increase or switch to hexadecimal. Um, additionally to that, though, they can find us on the Twitter at uh, brewery.f or excuse me, there is no period uh, brewery FM just on the Twitter, and you can follow us there. You'll get the most immediate no, no <coughs> news as well as banter and other information that is critical to your success. Uh, further, we'd love to have you. Uh, Add some feedback to us. If you're interested in doing so, you can do that on the Facebook or the Book of Faces, whatever you like to uh, talk about it. And it is available 24 by 7, 365, except for when Facebook has an outage. Um, that page does have information about the show notes. Uh, it is kind of your one-stop shop for all information, as well as to talk with Dan and Scott. Um, if you do have other feedback and you'd like to give it to us, uh, you can record yourself in an MP3 and post it up on SoundCloud or the you know, sound provider of your choice, or you can embed it in an email and send it to us at info, I-N-F-O, at brewery.fm.
Well, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. The uh, the humor to my life recently has been just uh, uh, playing with technology. Yeah. Yep. Playing with technology, huh? So you're gonna go get yourself a new MacBook? Yeah. So I uh, I went over to the so I went to two Apple stores on Saturday, um, both of which were mobbed with people uh, doing, I guess, their what is it? Fifteen minute uh, time to go get their wrist uh, measured, check out the bling on their wrist, so on and so forth. It was uh, it was interesting to watch. Then probably the funnier thing was that there were crowds of folks that didn't have appointments, that weren't waiting for appointments. They were just there to watch. Um, so that was odd to see. Um, the uh, the police presence seemed to be beefed up. Security was there, uh, so there were a bunch of folks there just making certain that. Folks weren't walking out with any of the Apple Watches, but uh, they looked neat. Um, I, of course, am not quite interested in them. Um, I might be interested in like a, a Fitbit Charge HR because that has the functionality that I'd like um, in any sort of piece that I would actually wear. You don't have that yet? Uh, no, dude, they're sold out in the extra large size till June. Still waiting. I I, yeah. I love my uh, HR. I've been rocking it since when did I come back to the US? I, I was back in January, right? Uh, yeah. So so yeah, I picked it up a couple days before I left. I've been wearing it religiously uh, between getting the rash and everything. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I am not looking forward to the rash, uh, but I you know I've looked at the website a couple times, and every single time I go back. I click on the beautiful buy now. I select the extra large size because my wrists are too big. And it just says, notify me out of stock until June. Um, so, I, yeah, we'll see. Um, I'm not really in the mood to buy a, a surge. Um, I think even those are on back order. Oh, wow, the extra large is actually in stock. Um, it, if you haven't seen the surge, it is a little bit bigger. Um uh, a friend of mine actually got one and she used it for a, uh, uh, I think it was a half marathon or like a 10 miler. So almost a half marathon and loved it. But uh, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I would actually make use of all the functionality. Yeah, no, they, they looked um, un- ungainly and big, right? Uh, and it, and it I, I've seen some not so pleasant reviews of it. Uh, and I know from dealing with Fitbit in the past that, um, uh, how to put this politely, uh, the, the, their build quality isn't always the greatest, right? Their devices tend to die like the day after they get out of warranty. So like I know I had a regular charge before I had the HR and, uh, you know, 366 days into it, it just started crumbling and dissolving and things like that. So I, I tend to stay lower cost with the functionality that I want to get out of it with the mindset that if, um, you know, if something like the surge, you know, costs 250, $300, I, I can buy one or two charges for that. So they're, they're probably all going to die about the same amount of time. So I might as well come out ahead and, and save the money now and be able to buy the extra devices in the future. Yeah, I guess, uh, for me, I just looked at it from the perspective of what functionality do I need, and 
you know, I said to myself, well, that'd be really neat to have GPS right there on my wrist and whatnot. And then I started reading about how if you run GPS all the time, it eats away at the battery. So that was kind of one of those where it was, oh yeah, it's just like my cell phone when I turn, you know, map my run uh, on and it starts pinging for GPS coordinates continuously, it, it kills the battery fairly quickly. So um, I, I figure I'm going to have my watch with me or my, uh, my phone with me, me anyway. So why duplicate the functionality and have it on a watch as well? Um, the other thing though, is I did toy with the, uh, the MacBook, the 12 inch. Um, if you think a MacBook air is thin, oh my, this, this thing is thin, dude. Um, I really almost felt like I was picking up a iPad air. Um, so it's, it's tiny. Um, the keyboard itself, uh, I, I don't quite like the feel of the keys. I still like the chiclet, uh, play that you get, um, the response and whatnot, uh, the keys really, uh, the keyboard, I mean, the layout isn't significantly different, um, but just the action you get off the keys would probably take a little bit getting used to. Uh, once probably I was used to them, I'd probably fly on it, but uh, it was kind of, you know, one of those five minute in-store kind of toy with it, um, locate the video to see what the uh, the trackpad force feedback was. And uh, if you haven't played with that yet, the forced feedback is definitely just kind of an unnerve, bleh, unnerving where uh, you hold your finger down and you press down and it starts tapping back at you. And I really was not expecting that. And so when all of a sudden, uh, you know, the trackpad started uh, tapping back to tell me, hey, you're pushing down and I feel you. Um, it was like, oh, wow, weird. Um, and sure enough, you know, I walked over and tried it on the, uh, the MacBook Air 13 inch Pro. Um, uh, excuse me, the MacBook Air 13 inch Pro, right? Uh, no, the, uh, the MacBook Pro 13 inch, the Force Track, and that was there too. Uh, worked just as expected. Um, the uh, MacBook Air 13 inches, of course, uh, do not have that new trackpad technology built into them, but, uh, they, they are a bit snappier than they used to be since they've got the additional channels of, uh, I guess uh, back to the SSD. So it's, it's pretty nice. Um, I think uh, I'm debating whether or not to pull the trigger on uh, upgrading the Mac or holding onto it for another year. But uh, I think probably when you get back, you might be interested in picking up one of the 13 inch uh, MacBook pros just because they are so super snappy now. Wait for the 15s. So they just announced, so? uh, well, we're all waiting for uh Skylake, right? Skylake? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Did they say they were going to have those? No, but, you know, if Intel can get their act together, uh, there, there's probably a reason that they decided not to do a refresh right around the 13s. So hopefully they're saving something up either for WWDC or uh, maybe a little bit after that. But, you know, it's, it's weird to see refreshes in the line for something like the 13 without the 15s following it. So, it will, will, you know, hold out until June or July and, and see what else they have in the pipe. We'll probably start seeing uh, component leaks around that soon if they do have anything. Yeah, there's there's an article published yesterday out on WCCF Tech. I have no clue what that is, but they're talking about the, uh, the Skylake uh, timelines and whatnot being this summer. So we'll see. It'll be, it'll be pretty spiffy if they come out with that of course then i'll be struggling to figure out do i want to get a you know whatever the next surface pro device is going to be will that have sky lake or will i instead want to keep uh, keep it real with a, the mac side 
Yeah, um, you, you know, it, the Service Pro 3, the one thing that always gets me on that uh, is the thermals. So kind of having that, that fan and the, and the ridge that runs around the entire device. And, uh, you know, if, if you've played around with the i7 ones, man, they get hot. Yep. Like, yep, like, I've got one. They, Trust me, know, I know. They, yeah, they they get hot and they're noisy and and uh, they're they're just out there. And you know, MacBooks, you know, they they have fans and they tend to spin and things like that. But uh, the new fans they use are uh, not not as loud. Um, and I've never felt like I was going to burn my lap off with my MacBook, which I've uh, you know, the, again, those surfaces they they get pretty warm. Yeah, no, I think uh, the thing that I noticed, and maybe this isn't true of the i5, although I think it is, uh, but they added, uh, initially when the uh, when the Surface Pro 3s came out, um, you couldn't change the power settings, so you were always just in balanced mode. You couldn't put it into high performance like I like to. Um, I'm not a tree hugger, so I like to get the cycles out of uh, the PC so I can do something else. Um but, uh, yeah, that didn't have the ability to swap out and change the power profile. And eventually they added that back in. So that's available to you to go play with now. Um, but oddly enough, I don't know what it is they did. Um, oddly enough, it actually runs better in balanced mode than it does in high performance mode, uh, high performance mode, the fan spins up and it just seems to slow down. I can't figure out why. So yeah, Microsoft for I, the I win. Yeah, you got it. Um, the other, uh, the other thing, at least uh, from a toys and uh, whatnot perspective, uh, I went out and bought one of the iAnchor Ultra Slim cases for iOS six. Um, it's cool in the fact that it does keep the you know the phone charged for a significant period of time. It's fairly cheap. Uh, I think it was like thirty bucks on Amazon. Uh, but the caveat is is that it doesn't have like a an interface that plugs into your phone's uh, uh, headphone jack like inside the case and then you know add like a very miniature extender instead it comes with a little uh, you know what is it uh, nine millimeter seven millimeter whatever it is the whatever the jack is for the uh, headphones um, it comes with that to plug in to let you plug into it so it was uh, not quite what I really like um that and when i popped it in it uh, popped up an error message that said uh this device may not be supported or this accessory may not be uh, supported i went whoa what wait wait what's going on here this is mfi certified why is it popping up this message um i, I sent a support ticket to the folks at i anchor they got back to me and they said hey how are you trying to charge it uh, did you have the phone in? What kind of USB cable were you using to actually charge it? Were you using the one we sent you? And uh, I was not. I was using uh, some Logitech cable. And so they said, well, that might be the cause of it. Let us know if you get that error again. Uh, if you do, then you know we can uh, help you out and get you uh, a new case uh, fairly quickly. So, I mean, the, the iAnchor folks are pretty good about doing that. They're pretty good about uh, replacing things if they're broken. Uh, but it was just kind of an odd thing to have it pop up with a little error message that said, device may not be supported. Um, do, you, so. do you find you need a battery case for your iPhone 6? So are, I, are you going to be on the, uh, the, the Mike Hurley was right train and, and get a 
six plus next time around or six S plus or whatever it ends up being. Uh, yeah. You know, this, this fall, I might, uh, I might switch over to a six S plus. Um, but uh, the size of it's just ginormous. Um, the thing about the, uh, the battery to me is it's more, uh, I went through and I enabled push mail, um, against my better you know, wishes. And that has come at a cost of uh, some battery life. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, I might take it off here in the next week or so. It's been an interesting experiment to have push mail um, back on the device coming down from exchange server. But uh, at the same time, it's been, you know, at that expensive battery and kind of getting uh, frustrated that my battery is dying sooner. So I'm finding myself plugging in a little bit more or using something like the Anchor Ultra Slim. So is what it is. Yeah, you should um, um, go check out. Uh, they had a iPhone 6 Plus review from uh, Federico Vitici. Uh, he's one of the authors over at Mac Stories, and he does a bunch of Mac podcasts uh, talking about kind of the transition of going to a 6 Plus and how it's nice to have the extra battery and uh, you, you do get used to the size and things like that. Um, you know, it seems like a lot of the Apple Technorati have been trying them out lately as they're traveling around for conferences and things like that. Um, and they're also taking advantage of that uh, Apple 14-day return policy, right? So um, I, I, I know uh, Andrew Connell's talked about this in the past, like when he made his switch over the Mac. Uh, you know, it's not the end of the world to go try a new thing with Apple because, uh, you know, you can try it out. And if it really, really doesn't work for you, uh, go and exchange it for something else that you think might be better within that ecosystem or just return it for a refund and, you know, you're free and clear. Yeah, I, I guess uh, from my perspective, I originally had thought about buying the iPhone 6 Plus um, and then eventually said, no, no, I'm going to stick with the iPhone 6. Uh, it's a little bit bigger than the iPhone 5 was. Um, that 5.5 is probably going to be a little too big for me. Uh, but now that I'm have had an iPhone 6 for, uh, when did they come out? Last September. Um, I, I'm definitely starting to think, you know, next, next go round, uh, going with a, a six plus. So, um, it is admittedly funny and maybe it's not funny. It's kind of sad. Uh, the number of kids that I see with these things. So I'm thinking to myself, kids break things. This is why we can't have nice things. Um, you know, just kind of the, the aspect of if, if your kid loses an iPhone 6 Plus, it's a healthy investment that you just had to go through and, you know, get a new one of. So it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting story. Uh, I definitely appreciate you pointing me out to that uh, Federico Vitici uh, iPhone 6 Plus review that he released yesterday. Uh, I'll, I'll give that a read through later and I guess uh, kind of make some considering thoughts for that. Um Something else, uh, I, I think I noticed you had mentioned something about uh, Apple TV having some issues recently. What, what was going on? Uh, da, da, da. Apple TV stinks, uh, or at least the, the current kind of hardware and, and things like that are uh, pretty horrible. I, I have all sorts of trouble with my Apple TV. I really only use it for the uh, iTunes rentals and, and purchases and things like that at this point because it's kind of a useless device compared to uh, my Roku and, or Roku, uh, however you pronounce that, uh, 
Uh, and then I also have a little Fire TV stick, which is just a, a fun little device to, to play with. It's cheerful, it works, it's snappy, it does all the things that it needs to do. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got the Fire TV stick plugged in um, in one of the HDMIs and then powered probably similar to the way you've got. Uh, that is nice how it you know, allows me to go into my Amazon library, just allows me to play with Amazon Prime. Uh, I think I binge-watched uh, Suits uh, a couple months back on that. But uh, I think for me, you know, I still use my Apple TV um, primarily if I want to watch something on Channel 9, and I will broadcast it, you know, use Apple. Uh, uh, Airplay? Yeah, here we go. Uh, I'm thinking something else completely, but uh, yeah, Apple um, Airplay to broadcast that from uh, the Mac up to a screen while I'm doing something else. And so that comes in pretty handy. Uh, I know we've got uh, competitors out there like the Chromecast that do similar things. I don't know if the Fire TV has a similar plug-in for PC to allow you to do that. Um, I, I think it's uh, Miracast compatible, right? I, I don't I don't have yeah. any. I, I, maybe the DV8 does Miracast, but I'm running Windows 10 on that, and it's so janky right now that I don't even want to try and see if it supports it. Um, yeah. I, I know uh, uh, Todd Clint, he, he, he's a fan of that, right? The uh, All those little devices, and, and um, I, I know he's chatted a bit about um, Miracast in the past, or Miracast, however you however you say that one yeah i think the the miracast stuff um it works pretty seamlessly if you've got windows 8.1 or windows 8.1 rt uh but if you're using like you said windows 7 then you run into some problems so um hopefully you know i guess i could try doing that as well um but uh apple tv for the most part hasn't been too painful uh over the past six days um I guess uh, I've, I've started watching the Daredevil series that Netflix put out there, and it's worked uh, fairly fairly well. Um, I don't know if you've checked out the net the uh, Daredevil show at all, but uh, I would not let your kids watch it. Um, it reminds <laughs> me of The Walking Dead and the fact that you have people getting their skulls bashed in, as well as uh, shot pretty you know gratuitously. Um, the only caveat is, is they're not zombies in this case, they're people. Uh, so it is, it is very violent. Um, but it is so far, it is just, it's pretty darn good. Um, the storyline, uh, it sort of follows what, uh, the Daredevil comics from Marvel had, but it definitely pays homage to kind of the way that, uh, you know, uh, Murdoch is just, he is a, he is a dark dude, um, with a lot pent up, hence the named daredevil uh but it's 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 really good i just i would not let any anybody under like the age of 18 watch it just because it's it's dark yeah it's a little 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 violent right it's uh kind of frank frank miller's dream <laughs> uh you, you come to the screen so there's a great uh review out there of the daredevil show and how it aligns to the comics everything from uh you know the 60s all the way through to uh, so some of the more uh, modern works that are coming out today, but uh, yeah, the, the show is definitely great. Recommend um, and anybody check it out if they haven't already. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, one of the guys, uh, one of the Asher guys that I know, Sydney Andrews down in Richmond, uh, said he had finished it, um, which you know, 
that's 13 episodes, each an hour long. So that's 13 hours that he somehow carved out in like three days to binge watch. Um, he said he was going back and rewatching it a second time already. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. But, uh, yeah, I would add it to my queue. Now I just get to go back to the show Arrow to start catching up on that again. Uh, Arrow is a horrible show. My wife likes that one. Can't, can't abide oh, by anything on. that she likes. Well, she she only she only likes it because uh, the main character is cute. So uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, on, on the binge watching front, uh, have you ever seen uh, Orphan Black? You know, I remember you and Becky Ezerman had uh, had talked about that, but I had never really checked it out. The only other thing that uh, kind of comes to mind from that is that you mentioned how horrifying it was. So yeah, uh, it, it's it's a great show. Uh, season one is going to be free on Amazon uh, streaming on April seventeenth. So not just uh, you know it's already free for you because uh, you're a Prime subscriber and I'm a Prime subscriber. Uh, but it's going to be free for anybody, uh, at least for, for that day. So if anybody wants to get their binge watch on and, and they don't have Amazon Prime or they they don't want to pay for that show, things like that, uh, an opportunity to go out and, uh, like you said, whittle away a little bit of your life. So reading through just the synopsis of what Orphan Black is, uh, I think I'm hooked already, so I'll have to go check that out sometime. Yeah, oh yeah. If you haven't done it, definitely get out there and uh, make it happen. You know, there's a couple like must watch kind of things, and and that's one of them. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones happened this week too. I'd, I'd throw that out there with must watch. But gotcha. Um, so you're going to uh, which you're going to the AWS Summit next week or this week or when is it? Uh, next week. So I'm going to do AWS Summit Sydney. Uh, I'll do the partner summit the day before that and then do the regular summit uh i think partner summits tuesday and then the regular summits on wednesday uh so hopefully a partner summit we learn some things about what's coming down um uh the partner channel and then wednesday is all about uh aws execs coming out and doing uh keynotes and presentations and things like that and uh, it's always interesting to see what the uh, ISV community is doing. They, they generally have pretty good uh, booth setups down there. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess uh, it, it was unnerving, uh, that, that Slack channel that we have, um, to see the number of announcements of AWS summits going on around the world this week, next week, and whatnot. I was just like, oh, wow, they mean business. Cool. Yeah, they've got summits and the other thing they do, um, they're, they're kind of like developer days. Uh, I believe they call them awesome days. Uh, mm-hmm. So they've been doing those in some of like the developing regions and things like that. So they've been having a couple of awesome days out in India recently. Um, and I'm sure they probably have some more of those on the uh, on the roadmap as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd like to potentially go to one of those in the Northern Virginia area at some point, but we'll, I guess, uh, wait for that to happen, I guess. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess the only other uh, thing going on for me is I have been spending a lot of time on the Redfin website at night. So I don't know if you're familiar with Redfin. Mm, Enlighten me. So Redfin is, uh, it's similar to like Zillow and a couple others, but they have uh, this really cool technology where 
they take in like a 3D mapping camera. And so it's similar to how you have uh, like Google Maps and the uh, street view, um, but it's inside the actual like house. So Redfin, um, they've got agents all over the place um, from a realty perspective, uh, but they have uh, some just cool technology stuff they kind of pull into it so that you can go in, see the inside of a house and not... Uh, not have to go walk through it completely. Um, obviously, yeah, probably you do want to look at places in person and whatnot. But if you can't, um, Redfin, they've got listings. Uh, they do an aggregate list of, like, all the different houses, regardless of who's selling it. Um, but anything that is, quote-unquote, a Redfin property being sold through them, uh, they come and they map it using their camera system. And uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, those, those walkthroughs they do... Uh, it's very much like having street view, but it's inside of a house. So you can kind of do a walkthrough of a house without actually stepping foot in it. Uh, what's most funny is when you look into like a bathroom uh, using their technology and you do the head on look into the mirror, you see the camera like scanning itself into the picture. So kind of funny in that regard, too. Yeah, I don't even want to think about house hunting or finding a place to live until June. Uh, okay. That, that all depends, of course, on uh, where you're thinking about settling down, of course. But mm, Yeah, someplace in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, that, that pretty much leaves you with a lot of different uh, places you can kind of check out. So. Uh, that didn't narrow it down for you? No, not really. Not really. Um, speaking of which... Uh, so for our fans that may not know you're coming back, um, any, uh, any news on thoughts of places you might, uh, you might be moving to, uh, no, or how that, how that, right. how that's looking for you in the sense of, oh my gosh, I've got to pack everything up again. Uh, we really haven't figured that part out yet. So we're about, uh, let me look at numerous. So I am 61 days out, uh, from back to America day. Uh, we'll probably be packed up and crated uh, a couple of weeks before that. I think it looks like June is going to kind of be our moving month. So we get packed and crated the, the first month or first week. Uh, and then I'll probably take some time off and uh, try and travel around a little bit while we're still out here in APAC because uh, it's kind of a long journey to get out here. So I don't know uh, the next time we would be back out this way. So we're going to try and probably close out and do one of those one or two last things uh then everything goes on the crate and i don't know after that so we're based uh the the company i work for is based out of northern virginia uh, and we have offices in reston uh, virginia and columbia maryland so that kind of opens up the whole uh dmv and I, I really don't know because we don't own cars, property, anything in the U.S. And kind of have to figure that all out. So we're effectively coming back homeless and carless and all that good stuff. You know, maybe I'll just uh, uh, see if I can go behind a Best Buy and find like a couple refrigerator boxes to stitch together with some duct tape or something and, and see what happens. Because um, we've got to go through that whole thing of... Um, uh, finding schools for the kids and uh, appropriate houses. And uh, my, my wife needs to find a new job and, and 
all those kind of things. So it'll definitely be a stressful and interesting couple of months. Yeah, uh, that's... Uh, well, if you need anything, uh, you got my numbers, all 38 of them. Oh, you, um, you're only at 38 now? What happened to 39 and 40? Well, you know, I decided to close down those Google Voice accounts to uh, try and scope down the number of numbers folks reach me at. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, speaking of which, uh, I know that uh, Google Voice is seems to be slowly but surely coming to its death. Um, I am still not totally on board with Hangouts, uh, especially for iOS. Maybe someday it'll have full parity with uh, everything else, but for now it just still seems to kind of be a second-class citizen. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's not too bad on iOS, actually. It, it looks like it's got all the SMS integration and uh, all the other little bits and pieces that come into that. The only thing that I've noticed with it is I can't make outgoing VoIP calls from the Hangouts app without it wanting to charge me, but I can go over to GV Mobile Plus and uh, it lets me do all the things that I could want to do uh, from there just fine. So, uh, I, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I did notice the other day, uh, this will be near and dear to your heart, so I was doing some uh, mod demo setups and the SMS codes were broken, so you couldn't actually provision a mod demo. Uh, but... Uh, the SMS codes were coming to my Google Voice number. So that was something that never worked in the past. They used to pop up a little error message and say, sorry, we can't send to that number because it's a Google Voice number. I don't know if that's applicable to just the mod demos, but I'd imagine because they're built on top of the office infrastructure that uh, you'd be able to hopefully start to get those that way without handing out your real number anymore when you're provisioning those 38 demos at user groups and things like that. That uh, would be nice. Um, I know, at least for myself, you know, whenever I do one of these Office 365 intro sessions, I'm always typing in my phone number now because I don't have a choice and I'm always somewhat uh, somewhat reluctant to type it all in just for fear of someone copying it down and then thinking that I am their personal helpline. So, fortunately, has not uh, has not been the case. But. Yep. So uh, it was working for Google Voice, and I also have uh, a Freedom Pop number, and it was working just fine for that as well. Cool. Well, uh, you know, just uh, like you said, uh, Freedom Pop, uh, probably time to pop and uh, start uh, putting together the show for next week. 